This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. and welcome to a Friday edition of the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor of the Peninsula Pulse. And with me is Deborah Fitzgerald, our editor-editor of the Peninsula Pulse. <laughs> I always get that double editor. Yeah. Well, because I always, I, I, like, I just think of editing in terms of, uh, you know, literally just going through and editing stories, not like yeah. making the big decisions. Yes. Oh, right. That's so you're, me. That's yep. you. I, I pass the buck to you on everything. <laughs> <laughs> the buck stops with them. Not to put more only responsibility. On, only on the, only, only on the really difficult things. Yeah, only on the crappy things. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Oh, they're yeah. Well, you handle them so well. Well, thanks. Your emails are better than mine. Um, <laughs> so what do we want to talk about today? Is anything going on? Well, yeah, there's always things going <laughs> on. I mean, and you know, we've got, let's see, what do we have in the paper for this week? Um, Just a couple of stories. It's yeah. very thin. No, yes, yes. Um, it's a 60-page paper, yeah. so there are quite a few things in there. But you've got a couple of things. You've got some things happening in your beat, which we call... Northern Door, which is <laughs> by north, our definition, right? <laughs> right, which is Gibraltar North. Basically, that's what we treat Northern Door. Yeah. But what's going on in uh, Sister Bay? You, you're going to be busy on a Saturday. Yeah, I'm going to be busy on a Saturday. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about. We're going to get to some riveting open meetings, like open government conversation. Which I actually like. It will be good. Stick around for that, mm-hmm. readers. And it's, we'll talk a little bit about. The pigeon that everyone's searching for. (laughs) And we'll give an update on our reporter, Sam Watson, a little later in the podcast as well. A lot of people have been asking about her. And and thank you to everyone who's been asking about her. We appreciate that. And she appreciates that. But first, yes, Sister Bay has a big discussion on Saturday, kind of a big unveiling of a facilities plan that they've been working on for a few months and sort of been talking about for 15 years in some shape or another. Hmm. Is this part of their capital improvement plan? I know that they are, I know they haven't been doing capital improvement plans for very long. And for listeners, those are the plans that municipalities come up with to kind of take a long range view of projects and then to set aside money or to indicate how they're going to be paying for that over time and what year they're actually going to be paying for it. So yeah. Sister Bay, I think just started a few years ago, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, I think it was 2021 or yes. 2022 that they did one, which... 2021, right. That's, I, I remember that one. Okay. And I can't remember all the specifics, but I do know that like a lot of the things that were high priorities then have <laughs> been yeah, pushed back. Sure. And, well, and that's, but, a, that's what a... And that's what happens, right? Right. And that's the thing that people need to understand about these plans is that they are planning documents. They're not documents that say, this is absolutely what we're going to do. It's yeah. kind of a wishful thinking document, except for the year that you're actually in when financial decisions have to be made about those projects. Yeah, and you actually got to, all right, we're doing that. Right. Yeah, we're doing it. Okay. Right. But or, the, and sometimes you're, you're in meetings yeah. and it's and it's a little bit of a surprise even to the board where they'll be like, oh, there's money? Yeah, let's do that thing that we've talked about for mm-hmm. like 400 hours in meetings and then it's just suddenly there's, oh, that debt burden's gone. Yeah, we should just do that road today. Mm-hmm. Like, And it just happens. Well, um, the more important question here is why would the village be meeting on a Saturday? <laughs> that is the that question. Is so that is so rude. I have gotten that from a lot of people. And uh, they have added a second kind of special meeting of the Parks Committee for August 28th to review this again. And they might have even more refined documents then. But yeah, as soon as this meeting was announced for Saturday, August 12th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., when you announce a Saturday morning meeting in peak season in a tourist town, our Facebook page just got slammed with, what the heck is this, is the kind way of saying it. Because, yeah. you know, a lot of restaurateurs, or if you're an innkeeper, if you're business you know, owners, anyone in the, in the non-9 to 5 world, which is, you know, most of Sister Bay's economy. So a lot of your property owners are wrapped up. So they were, there was a lot of... Uh, huh, I mean, well-pointed <laughs> questions mm-hmm. about that. So they added that second session. Hopefully, there'll be some documents that we can, from this session, that we can put online to give people other opportunities. And, um, you know, give. I hope the village is offering some sort of written 
or digital input method on this too, since sure. it is a Saturday. But it's not a presentation. So it's a, it's a Saturday, August 12th, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. There will be consultants there from Ayers Associates who has been working on this plan for the village. And people can come in, view the draft plans of this facilities study, and provide some feedback that will be facilitated by these consultants. And then it's not like a, a four-hour session that you have to be there. It's just like you can come in and hang out for 10 minutes, check it out, give your thoughts, or you could hang around for an hour. I'll probably be there for several hours. <laughs> okay. So um, does it show every one of the village facilities and like what they envision for them or what is it? I don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> but because I haven't seen it, they haven't released like preview documents. This is kind of good to be unveiled there. They discussed them at their parks meeting Monday. Unfortunately, I had to leave the meeting by six to take over watching my kids. And, but apparently there was a priorities, pretty, Miles. <laughs> there was a pretty good discussion in the couple hours after that. But the facilities included in here, important to note, the village hall is not technically part of this study. It was... Oh, that's a very important note. Yeah. The Village Hall has a separate ad hoc committee because there was that controversy last year and they basically said, okay, we're not tearing it down, so let's figure out what to do with it. And there's a, a committee f- hyper-focused on that. So with the, the facilities primarily that they're looking at is the post office that's uh, right down from the Village Hall that they initially talked about moving off of the waterfront in 2007 Post office does not like to be outside of downtown, so that has been a sticking point for a long time. The admin building, which is located sort of behind Husby's in a, I would guess that's a 40 to 50-year-old building at least. Mm. And then they're looking at the sports complex and what's the best use and design and layout of those facilities and what might move into that area. There's the dog park and the, the park's cold storage building, which is out by the sports complex. And then there's an old park's maintenance building that used to be the fire station that after the fire station got a new facility in 2004, the parks and maintenance department moved into the old fire station. And that's right behind the library, kind of prime downtown space. The consensus being the parks and maintenance building does not need to be in a prime downtown space. So they, I think in some way, shape or form that will move off of that property. It's just a matter of where does that go? Does it go out to the sports complex? Does it I'm guessing that's where it ends up. They also bought 56 acres known as the Wilsey property, which is east of the sports complex that, you know, the question has been, do we move all these things into that new property or do we combine them in different areas? There has been talk at various points of putting the village admin building and the post office in the spot where that parks and maintenance building is today. So all these different properties that they own. So they have like the parks offices are in one spot, admin offices are another, the village hall technically, even though it doesn't really function as a village hall is in another spot. So they're looking at, hey, what's the smartest way to consolidate all this stuff? Since we know like at some point in the next 10 years, we have to do something with most of these buildings. Yeah. And it sounds like one impacts the other. Like if we move this to there, we move this to there. And so it's smart to look at them in totality in that way. Yeah. On Monday, Julie Schmelzer, that question came up of like, why, why is the parks building the first thing we would look at? And that is sort of the domino to fall because that is in this prime spot off of Mill Road, roughly a a half a city block from Main Street. And so, as Julie explained it, like, we can't, if we think we're going to use that spot for something, we have to move parks first, you know, because they got to continue doing their job. So that means we got to build their new facility before we can do something. If we think admin might go there, if we think the post office might go there, like, we have to do that parks thing first. So it, it makes sense. But yeah, that's, and that's why I think they, they've piecemealed a lot of these things. Like the village hall discussion sort of came out of a random planning commission meeting where they said, yeah, let's vote to tear it down. And it was like, whoa, maybe, mm. maybe, maybe go to the people first. And they, <laughs> maybe they're learning from that kind of thing and saying, all right, let's bring it all together. Let's see what we need to do. Now, the reason it's really important for people in Sister Bay or even Liberty Grove who, are, who use a lot of those facilities to, to give their input is, you know, these things add up. I mean- it's not cheap to build any public building. It's, it's not cheap to build your own private bathroom now, but right. <laughs> like, to build an admin building, to build a, to relocate the post office, which would mean building them a new building, to do anything with the ice rink or the sports complex, all those things are, you know, you easily go to 2 million, 3 million, 5 million. The numbers grow pretty quickly. So it's a really big long-term priority planning process for the village, whatever they decide to do out of this. Mm. So they're taking the feedback from 
people to learn what they think should be done with the buildings? That's kind of what they're looking for. Is that? Yeah, they're looking for input kind of, I don't know how solid these plans are. There's, they say at the August 28th meeting, they plan to have, you know, high level renderings of what some of these buildings could look like. That doesn't mean that's far from a final design, right? But to give people an idea. And I think what they're looking for is maybe people come back and say like, no, we like the, if a ton of people walk in and say, we like the post office right where it is. Or if a ton of people say, we really think the village hall could serve this function. Or we love the admin building where like maybe, you know, I guess that would be the high level thing. I don't think they're going to be looking for very specific design elements. Although they might be asking people, hey, if we build an admin building, are you looking for something utilitarian and as cheap as possible? Or do you want it to be a point of pride type of thing? You know, compare it to say like the Bailey's Harbor Town Hall is very much a centerpiece set aside in the middle of town with a big lawn to look, hey, this is an important thing for our town. Yeah. Uh, if you go to town of Sevastopol, it's, it's a nice building, but a little more utilitarian, right? Yeah. And not elaborate and grand. Liberty and tucked Gr- right next to the school. So it's, you know, you, you think it's just a... Like, an outbuilding, right? Yeah, for the school. <laughs> and then Liberty Grove, very 1970s utilitarian. Can't even find it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's So I guess that might be the kind of feedback that they'd be looking for is... How how grand do you want to go with these things? Or yeah, so the or do you first want it modernist step, or something? I don't know. Right. The first step is where does it go, and then I think you know how does it look once you decide yeah. where it goes, because I think that determines it. If you're in Liberty Grove, like I said, I mean, you know, you need to put on your GPS every time you try and get to that town hall, because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just so it's like tucked, you know, in the middle of nowhere, in my opinion. <laughs> so. it, it is kind of interesting because the Liberty Grove town hall used to be right across from JJ's. Oh, um, really? Ecology Sports. Wow, that must have been a long time ago. What used to be base camp in Ecology Sports before they moved into the village, that was the old Liberty Grove Town Hall. The old wooden, and, and it looks very similar to the old Egg Harbor Village Hall that's now Patricia Shop. So if you want to go into any town halls, those are those, oh, they're still standing. Patricia Shop is still a public one. And then uh, the Fish Creek Town Hall by Clark Park. Sure. It's like every it, very basic, like the way you would draw a house when you were in first grade. Yes, That's exactly. what their town halls were. Right? Exactly. And that is the Patricia Shop. Yeah. I mean, which we all know, everybody who shops for clothing, for women's <laughs> clothing. So that's going to happen on Saturday yeah. for the village. 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And, and that's at the Sister Bay Fire Station, Sister Bay Liberty Grove Fire Station on Mill Road. And again, it's you, you can pop in. It does. It's not a four-hour commitment if people go. So. Okay, cool. So then the other thing happening in Northern Door in the village of Ephraim, you've been spending some time there, yeah. walking around with some of the board members, taking a look at what they're taking a look at. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, and we haven't talked on the podcast, so I should mention this. The village had looked at doing something new with their village hall and re-landscaping the front of it. There was a push to, you know, if you, the Ephraim Village Hall is one of those older buildings in the village. I, sh- I shouldn't even say that because there's so many really old buildings yes. in the village. So it's, it's a medium age building in the vi- village, but it's pr- pretty grand stru- structure right in the center when you're coming through town, you can't miss it. It's right in your face. And some people like Ken Nelson, he described it as, hey, this is, I think, the most beautiful building, not only in our village, but in the entire county. So a lot of people do feel that way. But it is surrounded by pavement and concrete right up to the building on three of the four sides. So there was a push to take away some of that pavement in front and have some green space or some garden in front of the building to give it a little more grandeur. And that met with pretty negative reception on the part of some of the village residents, at least at their public hearing for it, and eventually got voted down three to two by the, the village board, who essentially, on the basis of, you know, some of it was parking. Sure. <laughs> like, uh, they said, you know, we love green space, but why give up? We can't give up parking spots. We can't give up two parking spots for green space was literally the argument. And so that got voted down one update in Ephraim, but it kind of parlays into the other one because they said like, why are we, why would we spend money on this? And so they shot that down and they've also another big capital project they're working on is a path along the North end. And we've talked about that before. How long have they been doing working on this? It seems Uh, like a really long time. They actually got the first engineering things written for it back when they did the streetscape project in 2018, but they didn't do it because Essentially, it was a lot of money to do the streetscape, so they had to kind of cut it in half. And they said, well, we'll do the downtown core 
between the beach and say like roughly Wilson's plus the waterfront. Those are the two priorities. And then we'll get to the north end path. So, and so or the north, north end. The north end. So the north end essentially starts after Wilson's or the is it further end, north? What What's referred to as the north end is roughly Waterbury Resort, Blue Dolphin House on the south, moving north to the, the edge of the village on Town Line Road. Okay. And it's kind of funny. For all my years of driving through Ephraim, I never really realized that there's like two separate business districts. Yes, Ephraim's definitely. Ephraim's so small, but there are two distinct districts, which is it's kind of weird. Like no other northern door town actually has that. No, they don't. And it's it's really spread out. I mean, and I, yeah. would, I would say that it's even more than two because it really starts like at the bottom of the hill. Yeah, the you're bo- right. You know, when you're yeah. coming because there are... The Good Eggs, Bay Breeze Yeah, all area. of those little businesses that are tucked into, you know, all of those spaces that you can't really... That, that aren't fronting the road, but that are all tucked back. And then you get through, you know kind of the hotel resort little area. Yeah, the old core. Yeah, and then you hit some more businesses. And so then there is kind of a central district between Wilson's and the North End. Yeah, it's almost like the central historic core there. Right, And then you go that North End, which is, I guess, Door County's version of Suburban sprawl, and that's yes. no, not, not, not going to end, but that was probably later to come. Sure. And so you had a lot of the larger lodging units that were built in the 80s and 90s. I think the Waterbury, High Point Inn, Ephraim Motel, those kinds of places. But it's interesting because they haven't done a lot for pedestrians up there. Well, done a lot. They've done nothing for pedestrians up there historically, and they're trying to rectify that. There are... Between the Waterbury and Townline Road, there's, I counted it up, 167 lodging units in that area. Wow. Plus, there's a couple of condominium developments with a lot of year-round residents and kids in that area. And then you have a surprising, as you as you go through it, you don't think of that area too much as it's like its own thing. But you have the Red Putter, really popular mini golf place. You have the Blue Dolphin House Gallery. You Sip have Fine Line Designs Gallery, one of the bigger galleries up here. Sip and Spot that moved in last year and is really popular. There's a couple other galleries. There's the Door County Rock and Gem, the Summer Kitchen. So McKeefrey and Yeomans, like there's a lot of really popular business in that area and a lot of hotels, but basically anyone staying in a hotel there, like I, I walked the path with the, the board on Tuesday and it's, it's not a great walk on that road because cars are in the summer, it's 35 miles an hour. In the winter, it's 45. And it's just not a great place to be walking on the shoulder. And it seems it seems more narrow because there are beautiful trees yeah, there, too. Yeah, there's a nice canopy so, there. Yeah. So they are working on, they've, they've had this north end path, which would be an off-road. Initially, they talked about maybe it being a hardscape gravel type of thing. And they've settled on pavement because it starts to make a little more sense if you're going to try and make a bike. And it's a multimodal path, bike and pedestrian. How long is it? It's about 0.6 miles okay. between... So we're not talking real long no. to be able to connect. Right. Okay. But that 0.6 miles, all of those things are within that 0.6 miles. It's really surprising. And we're walking along it, and the engineer came back. Initially, they talked about a, a, significant, a, a path significantly off the road, kind of behind that wave of trees that create the canopy there, and weave it through some of the properties back there. But what the engineer came back with was a path directly on the roadway, like just an extended shoulder and with no barrier. And that very quickly in this walkthrough, I think it was Matt Meacham who said, if you put that, if you put this right on the roadway, that's just going to be, if someone's coming up behind someone and they're turning left, they're just going to pass on the right, right through that roadway. And there was talk, well, we could put some striping there and stuff. And he's like, striping is not going to stop someone from doing that, which I, I think is correct. And I think most of the data would say is correct. The other thing is the people going north or other people will use it as just a right-hand turn lane. So not only will you use it a passing lane, you'll use it a right-hand turn lane, and then you'll be blocking it if a biker's coming through. And then if you have cyclists on that path, your southbound cyclists will be going directly into traffic, which is what you try to teach all cyclists not to do. Right. So. And, and, and as you pointed out, there are so many different businesses. There are so many different driveways off of that stretch. So it doesn't even seem like the Department of Transportation would approve something like that. That's actually a, a good point. I yeah. Don't, I don't know that they I'm, I mean, I'm surprised Especially with the speeds. If it were like a 20 or 25 mile an hour zone, I, I've seen that in some areas, especially in Florida, where they do it right on the shoulder on a very narrow strip of island or something. But in this case where there is land, and in this case where you're going 35 to 45, 
that's, you know, a 35 mile collision head on between a cyclist and a car is not a good scenario. Yeah. 20. I think, I think that there's some sort of saying about this, but it's basically like at 25, here's the damage that happens. Severe injury at 45 you're basically starting to talk death, like almost guaranteed in that sort of situation. So, But you don't want anybody to get hit. And, yeah. you know, I mean, the point is, like, why would you want to put a bike path there, a pedestrian path, when there are going to be cars turning in and out, like, every, I don't know, 20 feet? Like, well, every... Especially right on the roadway. Yeah. So Sister Bay has a path and set off from the roadway. But the... So what the trustees told the engineers, come back with something that gets us as much buffer as we can, but still stays within the right of way. So in mo there, so as you walk through it, there are places that even if you're trying to do that, you're still going to end up next to the road. Adjacent, like pavement will not end. But there's stretches where you could get two feet or three feet or a four foot buffer in there. I asked if they talked about, hey, can we talk about, talk to these property owners and see if they're willing to give up some land. We either just let us have an easement or the village paying for it. The trustees said that they were trying to avoid having to pay for any land and they didn't want to take anyone's parking or anything like that. So they, they were trying to keep the cost down and not go into land. But they did find out that like very few of the, there's 10 property owners in that stretch. I talked to four of them, only one of whom had been talked to at all by the village. So they, they had not asked the question yet of even these property owners if they would say, yeah, run it through my land. Mm -hmm. So that seems like a missing step here. Yeah. In the communication. Right. Um, right. Especially if you're talking about something that could potentially be very dangerous. Yeah. There's also a hang up because there's a land trust property in there. And the land trust has told them they would only allow a four foot wide softscape. They're trying to put a 10 foot multimodal paved path through. So even, so the land trust could create a blockage here in, and it might have to be within the right of way unless the land trust can find some way around it. I know that's been a hurdle with the land trust and other instances as well in connectivity trails. So that may come up in future stories as well. Which seems kind of antithetical to what the land trust is, is trying to achieve. And I'm sure that people who even work there think that too, like, you know, yeah. not, there's always some gray area and there, you know, definitely should be some, some, you know, flexibility in those gray areas because you really do want people to take advantage of open spaces. And, yeah. you know, if, if it's going to create a barrier to doing that, then, you need to look at it at, you know, on a case by case basis almost. Yeah. Is this, especially when you're talking like not, Hey, this is helping development, but this yeah. is just pure safety. Right. Right. So there's a lot of hurdles that Ephraim's talking about there. They did. The weird thing here is they applied for a community investment fund grant, which is a very weird thing, which is the community investment fund is a grant that's taken from room tax dollars because it has to be collected through the room tax. And then it has to go, if it's room tax dollars, 70% of that has to go to tourism-related expenditures. So it goes to Destination Door County. Destination Door County created a granting program to give that back to communities so that they can invest in things like a path on the north end of Ephraim. So they created this thing to say like, all right, yeah, we know this has, has to be collected this way, but we want to offset the impact of tourism by granting this back for these kind of projects. And they have to be something that benefits residents and tourists. So it can't just be a tourist thing. It's yeah. got to be something that has a clear benefit for residents. Yep. So we're they're on their second really round. Yeah. yeah. Their second round that they just announced. And so Ephraim applied for that. And the community investment fund awarded them $100,000. Which was the... That's the largest award so far. Well... Would have been. It, yeah, there was another one that was $100,000 yeah. in this latest round. Yeah. And then Ephraim said no. Which is the thing that I was saying was bizarre. Not and the investment fund. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is just... When we found that out, I mean, Miles found this out a couple of days ago, and we were just totally befuddled by that because why would you even apply if you were going to not accept the award? Yeah. And like, and there are so many communities, like every community that we talk with has a project that they want to submit for this community investment fund. There were, you know, there are a lot, there is a lot of interest, you know, so to take everybody's time by applying for it only to reject it is so confusing. It, it is. And I, kn I know Ephraim has had a bone to pick with the tourism zone and destination door County. And I don't know if it's related to that, but you asked the question. I asked the question. I asked Mike McCutcheon flat out, 
he confirmed that they declined it. And I said, why? And he said, he can't say. I said, you're declining $100,000. Like I'm talking to business owners. They don't understand why you would do that. He said, it'll all become, he actually used the phrase butter clear, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think of butter as clear, but anyway, no, it's not. he said it's going to be clear. <laughs> okay. Um, or butter that's clear. The, that's the point he was trying to get. Right now it's butter clear. Yes. Um, Maybe but, it will remain that way. And that, that's what he intended. So he did not answer. He wouldn't answer that question. And, and I said, you know, after going through the walk with you, walk through with you 24 hours earlier, my story, as you edited, originally said, hey, they've applied for a community investment fund grant. And then I had to change the story because I found out that they declined it. So during the walkthrough, when they're saying, we're trying to save money, we don't want to have to pay for any land takings along this path. So we're keeping it within the right of way, which then makes it less safe, which, hey, watching dollars makes sense. It's, it's smart to, to pinch pennies, right? But in the flip side, to deny the $100,000 that would probably more than pay for all the takings you would want on that stretch. And it was specifically for this project. For that project. I, I asked him, like, that seems hypocritical. And I mean, it just doesn't make sense. What well, can you explain it? And he said, no. And then I asked. Which is strange, you know, on its face. I mean, because obviously they would have needed to have discussed that because I don't think that they went into closed session for something like that. Although they might have. Which we'll get to. So that's where the North End path sits. And then you have conversely, like right at the other end of that path, Sister Bay in the first round of community investment fund grants applied for and accepted a $90,000 grant to design a connection that would go from their path at the bottom of the Little Sister Hill and weave its way up that hill somehow, but maybe by going down country lane or I, I'm not exactly sure where they're going to try and weave that, but to connect it to Ephraim's path if they build it which I'm very familiar with bike paths. I'm pretty passionate about it. So yeah, I'm, I'm biased in favor of getting a pedestrian path done if you want to see any bias in my reporting <laughs> here. But that would then connect that Ephraim path all the way to Sister Bay, all the way to the Northern Door Children's Center, which then apply, that makes that whole project eligible for Safe Routes to School grants. So you've created, by doing their 0.6 miles and if Sister Bay and Liberty Grove do their you know, 0.25 miles, you then create essentially like a three mile connection and hypothetically get a lot of cars off the roads. But in any case, so that's where that sits. And there, that dichotomy of one village saying, yes, we'll take that money and we'll try and work on our path. And another saying, no, but we don't want to spend money. We need to save money, but we don't want to take your free money that has no restrictions. It's, it didn't make sense. And, 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 and it doesn't make sense. And it, you know, it opens it up to like wild ideas, like speculation. Yes. You can't help but speculate. Right. And that's what In the Mr. Void, McCutcheon accused me of as I was asking the questions. He's so you're jumping to conclusions. You're making assumptions. And I said, I'm just your board members were telling me this during the walkthrough that I did with you. Here's what you said. You confirmed you said no to that money. Like I'm just, and you won't tell me otherwise. Like I'm trying, I'm trying to figure it out. He said, well, it will be very clear. And then I said, well, I've also happened to notice that you have now had five closed session meetings since April without announcing, giving any context for why or announcing anything in open session. And the very next day they released an agenda for yet another. So six, including four in the last 10 days. And it's really important to note here, I mean, they do indicate why, but they use the statutory reason, which is fine. I mean, you're supposed to be able, you're supposed to identify which one of the eligible reasons that the open meetings law gives you to close a meeting that you're using. And that is really good. But they, like other municipalities in Door County, we see this on a regular basis, whenever a municipality is going into a closed session, the one that is most frequently cited is the one that enables them to confer with legal counsel, whether it is for uh, pending legislation or existing legislation. And Litig litigation. Litigation, I'm sorry. Lit litigation, yes. So that is one that is used so widely. And what is yeah. really interesting is that in the the attorney general has a couple of fantastic kind of cheat sheets on the open records law and on open meetings. And you can find basically anything you want in these documents. So their notice of closed sessions advice 
says that you do indeed need to list one of the statutory reasons when you are noticing that you're going to be going in a closed session. But the attorney general has advised that notice of closed sessions must contain the specific nature of the business, as well as the exemption under which the chief presiding officer believes a closed session is authorized. However, merely identifying and quoting from a statutory exemption does not reasonably identify any particular subject that might be taken up there under and thus is not adequate notice of a closed session. Yeah. Right there. I mean, it's as clear as anything. And if you're just citing the statutory exem- exemption, then a person cannot reasonably understand what it is that you're going into closed session for. Yeah. And yet they just kind of hide behind that all the time. Yep. And it's and Ephraim is doing that. Sister Bay has done that. The um, Village of Egg Harbor has done that. There are municipality. I mean, I mean, really, there is probably not a single municipality in Door County that has not done that. Yeah. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. For us as reporters, you know, we're trying to get to the bottom of this. We see it when we post, post something and we share it on Facebook and they, there's an obvious question there that needs to be answered and somebody will point it out on Facebook and it's, it's not because we don't want to get it. And oftentimes it's just, you know, we have to pressure and pressure and hopefully they, hopefully they don't need the pressure because generally we're not pl- trying to play gotcha stuff here. Right. We're just trying to get the Im- information that it should be out there. Right. And the other step is to go to court for it. And that takes forever. Or file an open records request. Or file an open records we, request, which also can take forever. Which we just went through with the Southern Door School District. And that story will be coming out, you know, in next week's paper. But that, you know, delivered 44 documents. And I mean, so it, it was a long process. Over months. Over months. And it, it is also a long process in going through all of that data to, you know, come up with some kind of ideas to what happened during all of those closed sessions into why they, why the superintendent of that school district resigned. So it is a very long process to go through that. And there are legitimate reasons why municipalities should be able to talk about things in executive session. Yes. Like neither one of us is, is saying that those should not exist. We can, we can both think of you know, really good reasons why that should happen. However, it's just the matter of trying to, when you're in closed session and you're going there to talk about things that you know will be inflammatory if you talk about them in open session, you know that it will be controversial, then that's when it's being misused. And I think that that's what happens is that they hide behind, you know, that exemption and then they hash things out. I think we figured out the village of Sister Bay did that quite their, a bit with their short-term rental in stuff. In their short-term rental discussion. And and I've pressed the trustees there and the village administrator about that because there wasn't a lawsuit, but they thought by creating their ordinance, people would likely sue because that's what's been happening with short-term rentals is a lot of lawsuit threatens. But like, that doesn't mean you should craft an ordinance in right. closed session. And That's talk about very, all the different options, yeah. which is which is you, basically deliberating what should or should not go into that draft document. Because hypothetically, you might get sued over your anything, your trash. What would you call it? Shielding that you would, you know, you know, you might have an ordinance that requires that you put a fence around your trash cans. Someone might sue you about that. You could be sued over anything. I mean, yeah. I think somebody, I think so the village you, just removed a bench. So, yeah. We got a letter on that. Yes. About somebody, you know, and they said, you know, why didn't you just let us know? You could be sued over anything. Yeah. So you can't just say, well, we might get sued. So it's because then why would you deliberate anything right. in open session? Right. And that's your blanket excuse for anything you would talk about. And in Ephraim's case, they are simply saying that very legalese definition with no context. Right. So. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. And then, and they've had six of these meetings now. Mm -hmm. And when I asked Mike McCutcheon, their village president, 
you know, what's the context here? He said, I can't talk about it. I'm like, well, is the village, have they been sued by anybody? He said, no. I'm like, so you guys are suing somebody else? Like, no. Why would you say that? I'm like, well, you're saying you're in litigation and you're not getting sued. I assume you might be getting sued by some, or that you're looking to sue somebody. And then you have this community investment fund grant that you've declined. I'm like, is this somehow related? Like, that's the problem is you, if that's not related somehow, then you're just creating needless speculation. Sure. I mean, because we all know that if there is a void, it's going to be filled. Yes. And it's going to be filled with speculation, and that's what's happening. And you know, Not it's, by us. I mean, but no, just, the rumors that— People asking me. When I talked to these—when I called those four business owners on the North End, they asked questions. But in any case, the point is just there needs to be some sort of context for those. Yes. And the spirit of the law is to err on the side of openness. Yes. And like you're a public official, you're public representatives doing public business. Your caution lies on letting people know. And an example of that is when I was covering the city of Sturgeon Bay through a lot of the West Waterfront fight and that whole lawsuit, there were tons of closed sessions. There was a lot of argument about what should be and shouldn't be. And council members would bring up the point before they went into closed session. Sometimes I specifically remember Kelly Catarazzoli saying, we shouldn't be going to the closed session for this. We should be able to talk about this at a meeting. And to Sturgeon Bay's credit, they would deliberate that kind of thing. And then they would have the, a process where I believe their attorney at that point was James Kalney. This was after Randy Nesbitt, that Kalney would say, all right, let's go through the kinds of things we will be talking about in context of closed session and why we are going into closed session to talk about them. And this was ongoing litigation. And they were still referencing and they were splitting hairs about like that part of this West Waterfront stuff that should be open session. If you have questions about that, we should talk about that now. This part could affect the legal proceedings and our negotiating position, da 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 da. So if you council member wants to talk about that, you should reserve that for closed session. So yeah, did I love that also as a reporter just whose job is to get information? Like, no, you don't like any closed session. But at least you know what they're ostensibly going in to talk about. Right, and at least you understand that they understand the point of the open meetings law. <laughs> yes. Which is, as you noted, which is transparency. I mean, so you at least acknowledge that you understand that, you know, this is why we have this law. It is not to hinder you in doing your job in governing. It is to be open and transparent about what you're governing on. And you need people who are serving on these boards who understand the spirit of that, you know, that it is most important to keep your constituents informed as to what kind of business you're, you're, you're governing. So that, that's what it's all about. I mean, and to try and control every single, you know, part of the process. I mean, this, this is happening in different parts. You know, we're dealing right now with Clay Banks and them not even wanting to give you know, resolutions that they're going to be deliberating on at an open town meeting. Yeah. Um, I was at a highway committee meeting at the county and they were talking about something that they didn't want to talk about at, at a meeting. I mean, it was, it was just kind of, it was kind of a, absurd. There's going to be controversy. There is going to be feedback from the public. That's what we call civic discourse. <laughs> yes. That's what we call democracy, and, you know? And you can't, and we all know anyone who's reported in Door County or attended meetings has heard a trustee or representative at every meeting and probably almost every president or chair of any board has said at one point or another, well, it's all discussion meetings. All you got to do is come to the meetings. I wish more people would come to the meetings and have input. You'd, you'd know everything that's going on. You can't say that out of one corner of your mouth and then go into closed session, make a decision, and then just announce the decision and eliminate the public from having to knowing you were even deliberating on On that. the important stuff. On the, yeah. Right? I mean, I totally get, hey, personnel matters. Mm -hmm. That's a legitimate closed session. But personnel matters. Like, a good example of that, I have to say, is Southern Dora because they made, they, yeah. they made it very clear that it was the superintendent's job that they were talking about. Yeah. So you could have just said personnel matters, which many municipalities do. Mm -hmm. And you have no idea who they're talking about. Yeah. Because yeah. they think, you know, well, everybody knows that the harbor master is, you know, X, Y, Z. So we're not going to put harbor master because then they'll know that we're talking about this job. I mean, well, you know, we're supposed to know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't just come out then and make, you know, simple decisions like we're going to be doing, you know, highway striping. I mean, you know, that is not, those are not the only decisions the public should be privy to 
prior to the decision being made. Like, yeah. that's the point. Like, after the decision is made, then what import are you going to give, you and know? The, and this is not distinctly a Peninsula Pulse or Door County issue. The Wisconsin Newspaper Association has been harping on this for years about this, the the closed government that's going on statewide. I'm guessing in, in the defense of municipal officials, I'm sure there's like this litigation fear of like, everything's possible to get sued. So let's, let's err on the side of like closing ranks, but that's not right. Well, it's and, not right. And I can also say that I think it has a lot to do as well with, they know that they're not really going to be called on it. Yeah. Cause there's fewer newspapers to call them on it. Well, there's fewer newspapers to sue them. Fewer newspapers, but there are also, it used to be that district attorneys were very aggressive on this. I mean, I remember in the early 2000s, there were, you know, quite a number of infractions that I had reported on. And there was a district attorney's office that was actually fully engaged with doing those because that's the office that does it. And then the attorney general's office is the one above that. Well, now, if you if you have a complaint, then it's going to be automatically diverted to the attorney general's office. And I have actually called a couple of times since I've returned and one decision the attorney general's office gave to me came five months after the question was posed. Hmm. It used to be I could pick up the phone and they would immediately start an investigation on that. Like, it doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah. So, and maybe I shouldn't even be saying this out loud on the podcast because, I mean, <laughs> it's just further evidence that you can get away with that kind of stuff. But not if we are constantly you know, putting it out there and letting people know that it's happening. Yeah, because that's the thing. If we don't talk about it, people yeah. don't know what's happening. And they can assume that we're part of the of the not getting the information out. Right. We're, we're in collusion, yeah. you know, which is not the case. So, yeah, it's a, it's a statewide issue. And countrywide, statewide. Countrywide. I mean, it's always the same, you know. So I, I don't think that there's anything new under the sun when we talk about issues and challenges. I mean, we might be able to talk about something that's happening in the Bay of Green Bay, you know, that wouldn't happen anywhere else. But, you know. There is a, another point. The Newspaper Association, I believe that's the one who has been lobbying for a bill that would at least make people, you know, if you actually get those records, then they have to pay all your costs to obtain them. Yeah, so which that would you be didn't nice. Have, because otherwise... You know, we're a small paper. We don't have an unlimited legal budget to go after right. these records, right? We're not the New York Times with lawyers on staff mm -hmm. to, to fight these battles and, and render opinions. Right. So it's with fewer newspapers with those resources, with fewer media outlets, with the reporters and staff to do it. That means they're just, there's collectively fewer people to put the screws in these laws that actually make them have any any merit. And I, and I can tell you that even just with the uh, records that we received from the Southern Door School District on the superintendent issue, there were, among all the records that we received, were the requests that media made about what was happening and what was going on. And there were only three media outlets that asked questions, and we asked more than anybody, and there were only two others, and they each asked once, and they were both local radio stations. Yeah. And, so that's and the state. A, there's of, an example of, and we I won't get into this here because it's nothing we can report, but I think anyone familiar with the Southern Door District and the controversy there would know that there are rumors that have run rampant about oh, of course. why. Yes. And who's involved and what is it? And it's, it, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with the vacuum there. Right. And I understand the struggles to give out information on personnel proceedings, but there's got to be a better way than just letting a fire smolder. Mm. Well, more on that later. But and So anyway, speaking of being short-staffed, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're at the 46-minute mark, but there is one more thing we want to talk about, and that is our reporter, Sam Watson, who a lot of our readers have reached out after you wrote a, a piece about it. She was in an accident a couple of weeks ago, and why don't you tell the listeners what you, you can and about her situation and, and uh, ways they can help. Right. So July 19, Sam Watson was on her way to work and she was in a head-on collision and broke a couple of her legs, her arm, her, her ankle, her collarbone, uh, bone at the back of her head. So she is going to be out of commission for quite some time. I mean, she's doing really well. She actually started, you know, physical therapy almost immediately and 
she had texted, you know, a couple of days ago that she stood up. You know, it was only for a couple of seconds, but she stood up. And she's probably going to be leaving Green Bay, the hospital. She's in physical therapy there next Friday. And then she'll be starting intensive physical therapy here. But she and her partner, Matthew Smith, who is an employee at Nicolet Bank in the Sister Bay branch, he's going to be caring for her full time. And she's going to be convalescing, I want to say. And, you know, she she was given eight to 10 months. So she's going to be away from our office and working for that long a period of time. But both of them, you know, were just starting out on their young careers and they lost their car. And so we wanted to be able to help. And so in partnership with Nicolet Bank, we did set up the Sam Watson Benefit Fund. So if you want to help them out with expenses, that enormous expenses that they're going to be having over, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the next year, then you can walk into any Nicolet Bank branch, no matter where you are, and give to the Sam Watson Benefit Fund, or you can mail a check to the Sister Bay branch, and uh, or any branch, really. <laughs> but uh, that one is, you know, where, where they opened it, Debbie Anderson, the manager there. So they will be able to access that fund for expenses that they have. And for those who, who don't know Sam, she's been with us about a year, a little over a year. She's been a great writer and reporter for us, soaking things up like a sponge. And she's been on the podcast a couple of times. She's, she's worked hard to make the housing situation work up here. She had a, to get a lease, she had to assign a lease where she would have to move out for a month in the middle of the summer and then move back in. And that's what they, that's the situation they were in when she got into the accident. Yeah. And so they, they were in um, temporary housing. They were going into temporary, or they were in temporary housing. And then now we'll move back into that other housing. And then, you know, she's making it work. And I just admire her commitment to try and find ways to, to be a part of this community and to be up here on top of being a good employee. And, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a really hard blow for, for a young person to be hit with. I actually drove, a, I was detoured around that accident that morning on my way to work. It could have been anybody five minutes earlier. That's and the awful part. You know, we heard the sirens, you know, we, we kind of interacted with it in and, a weird way. And then you find out it's your, your employee and, uh, you know, pay attention on the roads. Mm, <laughs> like, right. But yeah, it's, uh, she's doing well, you know, no brain, no spine injuries. So right, um, exactly. it's, it's all stuff. She's got a, a long road ahead of her, a lot of work to do, but, uh, yeah, we just want to let people know where she's at. And a lot of people, thank you again, have emailed and called and checked in Which on how she's so doing. Wonderful. So right, yeah. uh, it's a great community we live in where people care about someone they barely even know. Right. So she's going to be coming home, which is fantastic. What we don't know is if the pigeon made it home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have no idea yet if the pigeon made it home, and I'm kind of afraid to find out. But So for the listeners who have no idea about this segue. <laughs> okay. Not not to be uh, flippant about Sam, but no, moving no. on. She would love it. She would <laughs> yeah, actually she would. love it. She's um, got a great sense of humor. The uh, So from Sam to pigeons, <laughs> Emma, our intern, wrote this great story a couple of weeks ago. We've got a lot of inquiries. Take it away, Deb. This yeah, is- <laughs> so so this, is a, this was just a wonderful story. It was about a woman who found a pigeon who just, she has a beachfront property, and a pigeon showed up on the, on the beach. And I didn't think about it until... I read this story until I was editing this story that, you know what, that is true. We don't really have pigeons here. So she Hmm. thought it was strange. I mean, we have mourning doves, but... I can't remember the last time I saw a pigeon. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so she thought it was very strange. And, and, of course, it had a band around its legs, so that was even stranger. And it, so she contacted the information on the pigeon's band and found out that it was, a, it was owned by a Canadian pigeon owner who races pigeons. So this was a racing pigeon, and apparently it got waylaid on its race, but it was in Canada. So he, so he lost the race. He lo- <laughs> <laughs> lost his way. So we ended up on her beach. So she allowed it to, you know, brought it back to health over a couple of days. And he instructed her to simply then open this, you know, dog cage that she had it in and and let it fly and it would fly home. And so we don't she did that. The pigeon has has flown the Door County Coop, but we don't know if the pigeon has safely made it home yet. Now, when Emma checked, which she did a couple of days ago, the pigeon still had not 
been home yet. So we, and we've been getting emails left and right <laughs> over whether or not this pigeon is made home. And now Emma Chamley, who's our intern, her day, we're recording this on a Friday and her last day is today, August 11. And um, so if it doesn't get home by four, we'll never know. Well, no, well I told her <laughs> to send the contact information to me so I could follow up, but I kind of don't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to learn that the pigeon never made it home. I kind of want to just imagine that it found its way home and... <laughs> I don't know. But uh, apparently when you raise pigeons, this is just like a one of the consequences. Like you lose pigeons. Where is the guy who is waiting for his pigeon to come I home? I think he's in he's in Canada. I, I can't remember exactly where, but we are apparently, as the pigeon flies, about 150 miles south of where it went off course. So I'll have to like put an article, I'll go back to the article online <laughs> and I will optimize it for search for people who found pigeons <laughs> like, in northern Wisconsin. And that way, if that pigeon has uh, crash landed again, we can well, maybe get it a little bit closer. I mean, we, can, <laughs> we can have a pigeon watch. Um, you know, the pigeon doesn't have a name because he's number 17. That's what, you know, that's, he's, he's a number. Oh, it's kind of so, like Stranger Things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it makes it even that, I don't know. So it's humanizing this pigeon who has not been humanized, humanized <laughs> before now. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess they're not pets. They're just they're just racing pigeons. Might be a dead bird. D- <laughs> yes. So, so stay tuned, I guess. All right. I'll give that yeah, to this you. Was, this is a great episode. Keep an eye out for that pigeon. We covered... Uh, <laughs> Some of Miles' personal gripes. We got Sister Bay Facilities Study. We got legalese and closed session and open government tragedy and pigeons. All in one podcast. That's pretty good. And we're at 55 minutes, so we did it in under an hour. That was great work, Deb. Um, (laughs) Listeners, thank you for making it through this one. I hope you stuck around, you know, for that pigeon kicker at the end. And I hope we have you sticking around again sometime next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.